Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hello, I'm Janet Morena, the Executive Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to our program. Well, you know, there's so much we hear now in the news about chemical abortion. Of course, the abortion mills and those who support abortion call it medical abortion. There's nothing, medical means, you know, when we hear medicine, we think something you take from medicine medically, it's good for you, but not in this case. No, it's a chemical, it's a chemical abortion that not only kills the baby, but it physically can damage the mother too and also have psychological damage to her too. Well, joining me today is a woman who is fantastic in the fact that she's a ball of energy. She herself had a chemical abortion and then she went to work for the abortion industry, but then she had a conversion and now is working for a fantastic ministry founded by my good friend, Abby Johnson called, and then there were none. Helping people to leave that baby killing industry and then work full time to help give life to others. Well, joining me today, I'm privileged to welcome Kelly Lester. Welcome to the program, Kelly. Hi, Ms. Janet, thank you so much. Well, like I just said, you know, the news is just bursting with all the news about medical abortion. We call it chemical abortion. We even have that Supreme Court case still pending uh, to take one of the pills possibly off the market. But you yourself had a chemical abortion. So can you just tell us a little bit about your experience? Sure. Well, you know, Janet, the other thing is that the term medical abortion you would think that that means you are seeing a doctor and being prescribed this by a doctor and having care by a doctor. And now in the case of chemical abortion, women are getting it online without ever speaking. They're getting the pills delivered to their home or to a PO box without ever getting an ultrasound or taking a pregnancy test. They are delivering the baby at home through this abortion procedure without ever seeing a doctor and they're not getting follow-up care. And so my chemical abortion was not much different from what is happening today. I went to the abortion provider and was prescribed um, the two sets of pills. Um, I took the first set there at the office and then went home with the second set of pills. And the second set of pills I had to insert. Um, At that time, we were not doing it orally. It was, um, you were inserted vaginally. And the second set then sent me into extreme labor. Um, It was not a slow, gradual thing. It was not like a period cramps. It was intense labor. I have had six children. All six of my children have had to be induced because my body just doesn't seem to want to go into labor. And I can tell you that it is exactly the same as when they give you that Pitocin and you go from nothing to all of a sudden instant cramping, having labor experience. Um, I have had several other abortions before this one, which, you know, you didn't mention. And so I know what it's like to have a surgical abortion in um, an abortion facility. 
And the other big difference between this experience and my previous experiences having it in an abortion facility was those experiences I was medicated. So I had taken a um, a concoction of drugs. It's called a sedation um, a sedation appointment, and uh, it causes you to not remember the experience. Um, a lot of times, if you're having oral surgery or knee surgery, or many people know like a colonoscopy, they will give you this twilight sedation so that you are awake, but you're not really conscious and, and you will not remember the procedure. So my previous experiences, abortion experiences, that was what I had. My chemical abortion experience, there was no sedation. I was wide awake. I was fully cognizant of the entire experience, not only the cramping, but also the expulsion of my baby into the toilet. It took many, many hours. It started mid-afternoon and went well into the next day. It was extreme amounts of blood cramping. I thought I was going to die. And the trauma from that experience, because it was in my bathroom, and so it wasn't the abortion provider down on your corner or across town or in another state that you never have to see or think about if you don't want to, which you and I both know isn't actually a reality, but women can try to block it out. This was in my bathroom. And so every time I went into my bathroom, that memory was triggered. That was triggered. And in fact, it was so traumatic that I ended up moving from that apartment because I couldn't handle going back in and facing that. And so the chemical abortion is a very different experience, surgical abortions, and certainly not what it is being labeled as, you know, safe as the Tylenol. It's like a missed period. It's more natural. All of the things they are trying to tell you is not at all. And between a woman and her doctor, doctors are often never a part of this equation. Um, and women are not getting follow-up care. And so we are seeing women having sepsis, having perforated uteruses, perforated cervixes, all of these issues and not getting care for it because there is no follow-up to this procedure being prescribed or even recommended by the abortion provider. Um, and so it is a very, very dangerous thing. It is a very, very traumatic thing. And it is something that we need to be very aware of as parents, as grandparents, as community members, that this is happening in our homes, in our schools, in our dorm rooms. Um, and it is, it is not something that we can turn a, a blind eye to any longer. So now, Kelly, you said, you know, you had your, this, the baby expelled in your bathroom. Did you see the baby? Because I, I have, we have testimonies of women who said they were shocked. They thought it was just going to be a bloody clot, but they actually saw a little tiny baby. Did you, did you have that experience? Yeah, I, I didn't see a, because I didn't, I looked, but I didn't look, you know, um, there were certainly large clots with tissue in them. Um, and so I am assuming that in that was my baby. Um, but no, I didn't see an actual, um, you know, fully formed baby fetus. Um, and like you said, women are showing up to pregnancy resource centers and showing up to different places with their baby in their hand and saying, nobody told me I was going to see this. What do I do with this? Um, and so it is something that is becoming an epidemic that we're seeing around the country. 
Yeah, I know. And especially with the Rachel's Vineyard, the abortion recovery movement, that's what we're finding. Mm-hmm. Women are coming for help faster than surgical yes. abortion because they're more Absolutely. traumatized. Because they become the yeah, abortionist and, it was, and their home becomes exactly. the abortion clinic, like you said. Exactly. Yeah, it was a five to ten year period for most women that it took for them to have abortion regret. Um, and now we're seeing hours, days that these women are, are having that experience. And like you said, it's not something that you can put into that back room and forget about because it is you doing it to yourself in your home and you are experiencing the entire thing. And so it is a, it is a much more traumatic experience. Sure. Okay. Now let's just focus for a quick minute on follow-up. Um, mm. They make it sound like, okay, you know, you do this chemical, medical chemical abortion and then, you know, tomorrow go back to school and work. No big deal. I've been getting with our, our abortion recovery programs, testimonies of women saying I was bleeding for weeks and weeks. It went on for a while. It wasn't just one, two, three. What was your experience? Mine was for days. So the first 24 hours was intense intense and labor labor like if any woman has ever had a miscarriage it was like that i mean it was full clots heavy bleeding um for a full 24 hours and then it did lighten up after 24 hours but was still in excruciating pain still bleeding very heavily um and then it would be like it would kind of come and go so it would ebb and flow you know there would be you would feel like okay i'm finally coming out of this and then all of a sudden you would pass you know more tissue um and it did continue on for weeks it was a good six weeks of bleeding where it would come and it would go it was on and it was off but that first 24 hours i couldn't leave the bathroom i mean i was stuck in the bathroom dealing with the after effects yeah and you know when you think about it you know when you go to a, a an OBGYN, you know after you've had a baby there's all this postpartum care and then you know right. when does your normal cycle resume in the case of the right. chemical abortion like when does a woman's normal re- cycle resume and, and how does that play out? Cause you're not, adop- there's no medical involvement. So what would, I mean, did it take a while then to your cycle like click back into normalcy? It did. It took a while um, for it to get back to its normal. And, and, and then that stage of my life, honestly, I was super normal cycles anyway, because of eating disorders and drug addiction and those kinds of things. And so I was sort of all over the place, um, which is I wasn't using birth control. And so that obviously is another issue, because if you're not using birth control and you don't know where your cycle is, you are far more likely to get pregnant. Um, and, you know, even having had an abortion and then afterwards you are far more likely to get pregnant so there was a lot of issues with that you know the interesting thing talking about the follow-up is according to the insert in the misoprostol medication the ru46 prescription if you read the insert on that that paper it says that you should have 24 hours before using the product and you should have an ultrasound no more than seven days after using the medication. And the purpose for that is first off in the initial one to check gestational age to make sure that you're not 15, 20 weeks pregnant because if you were like me and you didn't have a regular cycle and it was all over the place and you weren't tracking it anyway, you gestational age. So they ask, they want you to do that. But then the second is for the follow-up to make sure that there is nothing left behind, to make sure that everything is clear 
And that is what is on the prescription insert. And it is not being done anywhere. The only people now that are doing it is some pregnancy resource centers are realizing that it's a need. And so they are stepping up to fill in that gap to make sure that women aren't dying from sepsis. But as far as the abortion providers, no one is doing that. Unbelievable. And, you know, these are, this is just more and more. And notice what you said, too. Um, you go, oh, at that time in my life, I was, you know, eating disorder and uh, abusing drugs. Well, if you look at all the, the analysis of women who had surgical and now chemical abortions, that's part of the list of, of, of the after effects, isn't it? They're abusing drugs Absolutely. and alcohol to try to get rid of the, the, the whole trauma. And, and some of them have eating disorders. In fact, Dr. Teresa Burke, the founder of Rachel's Vineyard, she first got cued into this because she was leading a group of all women who had eating disorders. And one day, one of them blurted out, I had an abortion. That's why I'm so upset. And then sure enough, like seven or eight other women in the same group all chimed in and, and it, was, it honed her on, oh my goodness, there's a connection here. So, I mean, the, the fallout is going to get worse and worse when we just keep allowing this chemical abortion. I mean, when they get it into pharmacies, which is, as you know, that's what we're trying to fight now. Like that someone could just go in and get it without a doctor or like now they're getting it mail order. Mm -hmm. It's just despicable because it's not women's health. And these politicians, these Democrat politicians who stand up and champion for women's health and, and they champion all this chemical abortion, they're really not looking out for women. It's the money uh, behind like Planned Parenthood, which that's my next question. So how did you, after that abortion experience, become someone who worked in the abortion industry? So I actually had that abortion experience after I left the abortion industry. I, I worked in the abortion industry right after I'd had my first abortion. So back to something earlier that you said a little bit, I was a child who was molested at three years old. I was raped um, as a freshman in high school. That led me to be very promiscuous. I got pregnant at 15 and I had my first abortion. Those earlier experiences did not throw me into drugs and into eating order eating disorders. But when I had my first abortion, that threw me into drugs and into eating disorders and into abusive relationships and all kinds of things. And so I was living a chaotic life of drug dealing and um, just all kinds of depravity and wanted to get out of that crazy lifestyle. And so I looked for a job. Um, I had was a I, I didn't graduate college, so I didn't have a college degree. I was working in bars and, and again, selling drugs. And so I looked and found that a local women's clinic was hiring for a receptionist. And I went to the address. This was back when we looked for jobs in the newspaper. I went to the address in the newspaper, and sure enough, it was where I'd had two abortions. And so I walked in, and I got hired on the spot because they remembered me and knew that that I was, you know, friendly to their cause. And um, because I was young and I was inexperienced, they knew that they could mold me and shape me into what they wanted me to be. Um, they could ask me to do things that I would probably find morally um, against and certainly legally that were not appropriate. But because they were paying me $18 an hour 20 years ago, um, and because of my situation, I was a perfect victim to fall into the abortion industry as a worker. And so wow. I got hired as the receptionist and um, did many things that a receptionist should not be doing, including dispensing the chemical abortion. In 
including when women came in for their report ID, I would take their money and then I would hand them a cup with Valium and water. And I was not licensed to do that and not supposed to do that. Um, I was also over the recovery room. And so when women, and again, at, at the clinic that I was at, the majority of people had the sedation appointment, um, you were supposed to check O2 levels, blood pressure, all of these different things to make sure that after they've had their appointment, that they are cleared to leave. And we didn't do any of those things. My job, again, as the receptionist was to go into that room at 20 minutes after their procedure to hand them cookies, juice, a bag with their clothes, um, birth control, if they were getting that and the, the procedure. Um, and again, that was as the receptionist. I had no, I wasn't a nurse. I wasn't a doctor. I wasn't an EMT. I don't even think I knew how to do first aid or CPR at that time. Um, but that was responsibilities, which I happily did because they were paying me such good money. And you know, Kelly, when you think about it, I just took my, my dogs uh, to the vet. I have three Shih Tzus, right? And when you take your animal to a veterinary clinic, yes, the assistant, they'll help put the dog and weigh them and, and prep the dog and whatever. In comes the vet. Only the veterinarian gives them their rabies shot or their even the Bordadella uh, thing goes in their mouth. The, the assistant doesn't do that. Only the doctor. So dogs and cats are cared for better in veterinary clinics than women are in abortion clinics based on what you just said. Yeah. I mean, you, you said earlier that it's, you know, abortion is considered health care. And what other kind of health care does a medical professional do a service, do a procedure? Let's say you're going to go get your tubes tied. Your doctor is not going to tell you if there's a complication from your surgery. Go to the emergency room and tell them that you had your appendix taken out. That doctor is going to say, if there's a complication, if you have bleeding or swelling or temperature or anything, come back to us and let us fix you. You, or if you have to go to the emergency room, tell them exactly what happened. With the chemical procedure and even the surgical procedure, they are recommending that if women have a complication, that they go to the emergency room and tell them that they are having a miscarriage. Not that they had an abortion and that they are having complications. Not that they had any of these. Go to them and tell them that you are having a miscarriage. The other thing is, the reason that I left the abortion industry what other medical procedure would, if there was a complication, would they not tell you? And the reason that I left was because in the recovery room, the number of women that were hemorrhaging from perforated bowels, perforated uteruses. And when that happened, we would take these women back to their procedure room. We would give them more sedation. And then we would, quote unquote, fix whatever was wrong, which really just meant stop the bleeding. We would send them out and we would release them and never tell them what had happened to them. Now I've had a couple of knee surgeries and in those surgeries, in one of them, there was a complication. It happens sometimes in medical procedures, but when it happened, the doctor sat down with me and said, during your procedure, this happened and that happened and we had to do this. And because of that, we want you to, you know, that was explained to me fully because of that. We want this follow-up. These women are never being told what happened to them. So these women are not only terminating their pregnancy that day, but many of them are ending the potential of them ever being able to become mothers because they are not getting follow-up care. And what other medical procedure or medical profession would that ever be allowed? That would be malpractice 
through and through and through. Informed, that is not informed consent. And so the fact that the abortion industry is the only quote unquote healthcare provider that gets away with those kinds of things and nobody sees that it's weird. Everybody's going, why is this? This doesn't make sense. If abortion is healthcare, then these women should be, you know, be playing with their providers. They should be getting up follow-up care. And that's not happening. Um, and in fact, within the abortion industry, follow-up appointments are no longer standard, whether it's a surgical abortion or a chemical abortion. And that's for one reason. Well, actually, it's two reasons. One, you don't make any money on the follow-up appointment. And two, if you come in with a complication, we then have to document it. Whereas if we send you out to an emergency room for follow-up care, we don't have to document it. And so it doesn't end up being a strike us. And so we're just yeah. not seeing it. So now Kelly, you had said in your training as the receptionist, um, yeah. they taught you to lie. Now we also, we just heard one lie about, mm -hmm. you know, sending them off to the emergency room and all that. But were there other things they told you like in the training, like don't say this or say that? What, what are the kind of lies uh, did they have you tell you to do? Well, absolutely. Everything. So we were taught and we were trained that when a woman is coming into our facility, we are to assume that abortion is the answer for her, that it is the only option, that it is the best choice. And it's really the choice that she's already made. We just want to make it easier for her. And so one of the things that I was in charge of was called editing magazines. And so I would go through all of the magazines in the waiting room and I would edit out any pictures of babies wedding rings, anything that might cue her maternal instinct. And we would cut those pictures out. We would, we had a video on the TV that looked like they were watching live TV, but again, we had edited out any kind of commercial or anything that might cue that because we didn't want that to happen to her. And so, you know, the, the other thing was, with the guys, we would have guys that would come. This was in the state of Virginia. So at that time there was a 24 hour waiting period. So you would come for your first consultation and then 24 hours later you would come back for your appointment. And so guys, a lot of times would come for that initial appointment. And when the woman would go back in the back, we would turn the heat extremely hot or the air conditioning very, very cold because we wanted him to get up and leave the waiting room. Because when she came out, we didn't want him there waiting for her. Because sweetheart, if he won't even wait for you for this appointment, what makes you think he will be there for a child? And that is like such a manipulative thing. And, and I see, you know, I say that now and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe I did that. But you have to understand again, I was those women. And it was framed to me and said to me, Kelly, you know how hard this decision is. We want to make it as easy as possible for her because we believe that that was what we did. Everything was tailored to that. Um, I even would try to fill the books. So if a woman had called to make an appointment or had called to get information, I would always get their name and their phone number in case we got disconnected. And then if she didn't make an appointment or if she didn't show up for an appointment, I would call her back and try to get her in because we wanted to fill the books to have as many appointments as possible because that was where we made our money. Unbelievable. So now, you know, you, you said you kind of alluded to it, but what was the final straw? The final day you said, that's it. I'm quitting. But then what did you do for a job and how did you get connected with Abby Johnson and our great friend there? And then there were none. So tell us about that whole episode. 
Yeah, for me, it wasn't a it wasn't a final day like this is the end. I'm done. You know, there wasn't any big thing. It was a culmination of things. It was one I again because I was those women, and I heard the way that the nurses and that the staff talked about the women, and I thought, gosh, did they talk about me that way? You know, I saw the damage that we were doing to these women's bodies and the way that we weren't lying to them. And I thought, man, did that happen to me? I actually went and got my file to see if that had happened to me because there's no way that I would know know um, because of the sedation. And so it was kind of a culmination of those things. And I just one day was like, I'm done with this. I thought I was helping people in this. I'm not helping people. And so I quit. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't leave and become, you know, the, the great pro-life advocate that I, I was still very much caught up in drugs and, you know, all of the different things. And it took many years um, and it culminated in a domestic abuse um, down situation down in New Orleans where a guy was to hit me over a head with a board and kill me um, in a fight. And mid-swing, he dropped the board, punched me in the face several times. Um, the fight stopped because there was blood everywhere. And the next morning I woke up and I had text messages and phone calls from my father in Virginia. Um, we were down in New Orleans and I didn't answer them because your dad's the last person you want to talk to after a night like that. But then 24 hours after that, I packed all my belongings and drove back to Virginia. My dad meets me. I have two big black swollen eyes. My nose is crooked. My you know, mouth is all messed up. And he begins to cry. And I'm like, oh, dad, you know, I was in a car accident. And he said, Kelly, two nights ago, I was asleep. And in the middle of the night, I was awoken by the Lord. And I had a vision of you laying dead on the floor with your head split wide open. And so I began to pray. And I realized that the moment when my boyfriend had dropped the board was because of my father's prayers 1,200 miles away. Um, took a couple of weeks of me, you know, getting sober, getting healed. And I was sitting in the front row of my dad's church and he was a pastor and he gives an altar call. And I hear as clearly as I've ever heard anything. I heard the Lord say, Kelly, have you had enough? And I knew that it was my father, God, and I knew that he was calling out to me. And I said, but God, you know, how can you forgive me for all of the things that I had done to myself and all of the things that I'd been through? And he said, Kelly, if you follow me, I will make beauty from ashes. So over the next 10 years, the Lord healed me, restored me. Um, you know, I turned my life around. I got around other women who were speaking life over me. I started reading my Bible. Um, and then a friend of mine told me about a pregnancy resource center that was hiring for an event coordinator. And I went and applied and got hired and came for this pregnancy resource center, started telling my story, actually told my story for the first time on the stairs of the Supreme Court with Silent No More. Um, and then started going to churches and telling my story to raise awareness about the Pregnancy Resource Center. But the aspect of my story that I never had spoken about was working in the abortion clinic. Like I would talk about my abortions. I would talk about the domestic violence, you know, the rapes, all the things, homosexuality, all the stuff. And I would see people soften. But when I talked about working in the abortion facility, people did not give me that same look. And then it was October and this movie called Unplanned was coming out and, and it was a fundraiser that pregnancy resource centers could use to organization. And so we did it. I hadn't seen it. I didn't know about Abby Johnson and I was sitting, I, I had to open the movie and talk and then I had to close the movie and talk. And I'm literally sitting there watching the movie going, oh my goodness, this is my story on screen. 
And I knew that that was an aspect of my, of my journey that I had never really gotten healing of because it wasn't something I was comfortable sharing and had never met another abortion war. And so January, um, after that of 2020, we went to the March for life and, and then there was none was there with coffee with quitters. And I went up to him and said, Hey, I haven't really told anybody this, but I used to work in the abortion industry. And they gave me a big hug and said, you found your tribe. And then I came on as a client and was a client with them, started volunteering for pro love ministries, Abby's other ministry doing, um, casework for love line. And then in February of 2021, I came on staff with her. And um, now I'm, you know, I'm part of the tribe and part of the staff and, and just love the work that And Then There Were None is doing. That's great. Well, you know, Kelly, your, your story, your whole journey is so amazing. And there's so much the kind of truth I've been speaking about, writing about in my books about <clears throat> what happens to women in these abortion clinics. So I want to thank you for saying, yeah, that was me. I'm the poster child. Yes, it's all true. Yes, they lie. Yes, they hurt women. So you are just so brave and continue, continue telling the truth because, you know, people always say, oh, the people in Washington, they're not listening. Oh, this and that. Doesn't matter. We're here to save them one soul at a time, one life at a time. And I'm sure your story too will help countless others leave the abortion industry and say, that's it. I'm done with the lies. So thank you and God bless you. And we'll continue, girlfriend, to work. Girlfriends for life, aren't we? Because <laughs> we're pro-life. That's right. Thank That's right. Yes, ma'am. Thank, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you so much. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you learned a lot on this program. But before we go, I'm going to give you a few reminders. Okay. Number one, if you know someone who's pregnant and in need, you can go to PregnancyCenters.org. Again, PregnancyCenters.org. Put in your zip code. You will see where the nearest pregnancy center is. You know someone who's hurting from an abortion. There's so many abortion recovery programs all over the United States. Go to abortionforgiveness.com. That's abortionforgiveness.com. Put in your zip code. You'll see where the nearest recovery program is. And also, too, remember our good friends, Abby and Kelly, at, and then there were none. You go to their website. Someone who's in the abortion industry right now, maybe you can't sleep at night. Maybe this is bothering you. You want out? Kelly and her tribe are here to pull you out of that abortion industry and help you get settled in life at a good-paying job, decent place to be, because we're here for you. You are not alone. And brothers and sisters, all this information today was so wonderful, but don't let it stay just here. Spread it wide. Have your pastor put something in your church bulletin. And remember, at the end of the day, there are some abortions only you're going to be able to stop and some lives only you will save. Thank you and join us again next time. God bless.
This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.